Welcome to Transform, a podcast about the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Chuck Sudo, business reporter with Senior Housing News. Addressing the growing demand for middle market senior housing is one of 2019's top issues in senior living. But Human Good CEO John Cochran says that the industry first needs to realize there is no simple solution, as middle market senior housing encompasses varying product types and price points. Cochran is now in his 11th year as head of the Pleasanton, California-based provider, which ranked eighth on the 2019 Leading Age Ziegler 200 list of largest nonprofit senior housing operators. Human Good owns and operates a portfolio of 77 affordable and low-income communities, serving over 10,000 residents across the western United States. Earlier this year, the company announced an affiliation with Presby's Inspired Life, which serves 3,000 people across the greater Philadelphia area in 36 affordable housing communities and three life plan campuses. This gives Human Good an East Coast presence and an opportunity to build scale nationwide, a longtime goal of Cochrane's. Our conversation also touched upon how he sees the senior housing consumer changing over the next decade, how nonprofit providers are competing against their for-profit counterparts in the current market landscape, and his priorities for human good as it enters a new growth phase. Before we hear that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. We're looking to celebrate unique projects, including both new development and rehab, that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you think you have a project that fits that description and are looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. And now, here is my conversation with John Cochran, CEO of Human Good. And John Cochran, Human Good CEO, thank you for uh, joining Transform. Chuck, great to be with you. Wonderful. I appreciate it. I wanted to start by asking you to elaborate on something you mentioned during our interview in June around the time that the uh, Human Good Presby affiliation was announced. And you said that middle market is not a one-size-fits-all equation. And I wanted you to elaborate on that. Sure. I'm happy to do that. You know, the middle market, I think, is getting most of the oxygen in discussions around our field about growth opportunities, and, and for very good reason. If you look at the demographics of our market, the middle market, the the middle segments of the market are going to be the the fastest growing and the most underserved of the markets. And so it's not surprising that they're getting a fair amount of attention. If you look at our current field, the the top, say, 15 to 20 percent of the demographic is relatively well served with market rate, life plan communities, rental communities, and other healthcare related options. Uh, the bottom 20% is reasonably well served, I will say, with uh, subsidized affordable housing. There's a, clearly a, a demand for significantly more affordable housing both today and into the future. But that leaves 60% or so of the market that doesn't want or doesn't qualify for a life plan community or, or similar type community won't qualify for a subsidy at any point in time. And so they have very few options. And, and so... Almost all of the providers, and I'll, I'll lump kind of anyone in the senior living space as, as a provider here for purposes of this conversation, are talking about the middle market. 
But I think one of the mistakes that we make is, is, and I hear this a lot as I go from conference to conference, we talk about the middle market as if it's this monolithic aligned market uh, that share common interests and, and common uh, capabilities. And, and I think we're misrepresenting a little bit the opportunity and the need. And I think when we, a better way to think about the middle market is simply to put it in the plural, the middle market. Uh, there are any number of sub-markets with, within that broad swath of 60, 70% of the population that is not either at all or well-served by current offerings. And I think that's where the opportunities lie. When you talk with providers about how they're planning to enter what, what referred to as the middle market, what most people mean is they're coming at the market from the top down. They're looking at the traditional life plan community. They're looking at the high-end rental community and trying to skinny it down and make it more accessible to a, a broader demographic of folks. And so instead of reaching the top, say, 20% of the demographic, we're going to now reach the top 30 or 35% of the demographic. And, and that's fine. There's, I, I think there are significant business opportunities there. But that's still only reaching a relatively small slice of, of a relatively huge market. And, and that's the only point I'm trying to make when I talk about the middle markets is, uh, it, it's a it's a broad swath of, of people and interests and geographies, and I think we need to think a little more broadly than than we have been in the past. Okay, and uh, piggybacking off that answer, I wanted to ask where Human Good sees its place in meeting that demand for you know the middle markets. That is, I think potentially we could play because we we have a meaningful presence with twenty one life plan communities. Uh, scattered across the country. We certainly understand the higher-end uh, entry fee, high-end rental market. And because we have 95 government-subsidized low-income housing communities, we certainly understand the lower end of the market. And so I think potentially an organization like Human Good can play almost anywhere in the middle markets. I think the challenge that we have and others have is you can perhaps play anywhere, but you can't play everywhere. So you've got to decide what is your sweet spot, both from a business development standpoint, but in our case, also from a mission fulfillment standpoint. And so as we look at the middle markets and where people are targeting and where the need is and where the growth is and where we best fit in as an organization, I think we're seeing a lot of activities I referenced earlier on the higher end of the middle market. So the you know 60 to 80 percentile of the market. I think what we're looking at doing is something different from what I've heard other providers exploring, and that is we are experts at developing low-income affordable housing. We, we know how to build on time, on budget, attractive, well-located properties. We know how to operate them exceptionally and maintain them well, and we know how to provide services on a shoestring budget. And so in the, in the very low-income government-subsidized part of our portfolio, uh, I don't know of another organization doing uh, more good for more people uh, on a on a skinnier budget. And so as we look at the middle markets, we think the least served slice of that market will be kind of the lower third. And so we're looking at taking our affordable housing expertise, both in development and in operations and in service provision, and trying to adapt that to a, a lower income uh, middle market product that will be a, a rental-oriented real estate product probably mixed use, probably a little more of an urban uh, location to it, intergenerational in terms of who we, we need to attract as, as a residential base. But we're coming at the market, I, I would say, from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. And I think that's what makes our play a little bit unique. It also makes it, frankly, a little more challenging to put the economics together. 
but again, we we have significant history at that. We have significant expertise at that. We have uh, good capital uh, partnerships and relationships that we think we can explore and exploit to to tap into this market. And so that's the approach we're taking is, uh, I think, just fundamentally different from what you see other providers doing. Do you have a leg up on other uh, providers and operators across the country in having a vertically integrated model? I believe uh, Human Good does have a construction arm associated with it. So when you do find a site and you find a market that has a demand for that lower third of the middle market, is it easier for Human Good with its capital partners and with the construction arm in place to get from, you know, say, you know, site selection to digging in the ground a little bit easier than competitors. It, it absolutely is an advantage. And I would only differentiate that we have a, a development arm, but we, we don't do our own construction. So we, we still use construction partners, but we have deep development expertise with our development arm, Beacon Development Group, which is based in Seattle. It's also where having a national footprint helps us. Uh, we understand uh, varied geographies. We have connections in varied geographies. We've got significant experience in developing low-income properties, uh, which are high-quality products you would drive past and never guess they're government-subsidized, lower-income-oriented properties. And so we think we have a significant reputation to exploit as we do this, but also the expertise in-house and the exposure across the country and the relationships that will absolutely help us with that. And we think that's a, a very significant leg up. We've got community relationships that other organizations that have smaller footprints don't have. Uh, And we have, as you referenced, the development expertise that's been in place over a number of years with a long track record of success, which we think is significant not only in in, uh, getting land entitlements and getting the relationships in place to bring these communities to fruition, but the expertise to pull them off on time, on budget, uh, with a reputation that will allow us to attract capital. Okay. You also mentioned when we uh, spoke in June that yeah, with the Presby's affiliation, the human goods always had national aspirations. And now that you have that East Coast footprint, what are your plans for growing scale? What target markets are you looking at? And are future affiliations with other regional nonprofits such as Presby's you know, on the table? Uh, yes to the latter part of the question. And to start at the, at the beginning, but we've always signaled that we have national ambitions. And, and the reason we have national ambitions is we've been talking for the past 10 years as an organization that we believe there's a consolidation that needs to happen in the not-for-profit side of our field. It's a fractured, fragmented industry uh, whose resources are, are too thinly scattered to be most efficient, most effective at, at mission fulfillment. And so we as an organization and others in the field have been talking about the need for a, a national not-for-profit consolidation. And we're beginning to see that. And, and I think that, that certainly Human Good had a big part in that when you saw the B Group Abhow affiliation three years ago. We signaled a, a different level of ambition with the Presby's affiliation two months ago. And as you referenced, that kind of made clear that we have national ambitions. And so as we look through growth by affiliation, which we think will be a significant growth vehicle for us as an organization. There are several things that we're looking at. One is infill growth where we're adding either single sites or smaller organizations within or adjacent to existing geographies. And so these are kind of the easy plug-ins to our existing infrastructure. Second is we'll look to grow from 
uh, Presby's, which is our East Coast foothold. So we'll look for like-minded, well-positioned uh, organizations with in strong geographies, strong markets, with with good reputations and good operating histories, good management teams, uh, and we'll look to grow on the East Coast using Presby's as our as our base of operations. And similarly, and we've discussed this publicly, where we are exploring Midwest opportunities to do the same thing with the Midwest foothold. We don't have anyone identified yet. We're not in, in current discussions with anyone, but we, we certainly look to infill where we're currently operating, grow from our Presby's base in Philadelphia, and then add a, a Midwest geography and grow from there. And we've already seen organizationally the benefits even from the Presby's affiliation. When you look at our, our FITS ratings for our California obligated group, even though it's California uh, ring fence uh, debt, there was real value for FITS in, in having a national footprint and a broad geography. And, and we've seen efficiencies in purchasing. We've seen the, the assistance we get in attracting uh, team members to a larger organization with a larger footprint and more uh, career development opportunities. Again, Fitch and our capital partners like the fact that we have uh, geographic uh, variation in our portfolio. Uh, and so we think there's continued advantages to what I'll call reasonable and right growth. We, we don't do rescues and train wrecks. We're looking for strong organizations that we think can meaningfully add to the portfolio, either from bringing in team members, bringing in expertise. Uh, and, and bringing in the opportunities to simply be more efficient, both in terms of how we deploy capital, how we operate, and, and how we attract uh, partners going forward. Okay. Going back to asking about meeting that, you know, that demand for middle market housing or middle market segments, there are some concerns that maybe the industry is overestimating the wealth of the baby boomer generation i think yeah we've you know we we wrote a story last month that was yeah, that sort of highlighted just how much debt the boomer generation will be entering retirement with and yeah and how they've not recovered their wealth or say or have the nest eggs of previous generations as they start to make that transition into independent living and later assisted living. Where do you see the senior living consumer changing in the next decade? Well, I, I think you're on to something. And, and I think that we do tend as a field to ignore or underestimate uh, or be overly optimistic about the financial uh, positioning and prospects of the the middle markets and, and the boomers in particular. I think all of the indicators point to an aging population that is significantly less financially prepared for this stage in life than previous generations. And there are lots of reasons for that. But at the core, you're, you're exactly right that this is a, a, a generation that's going to be financially squeezed in, in many different respects. And I think there are a couple of things we need to do as, as we look to how we're going to service this generation. There are several things we need to keep in mind. We need to remember that as we look to how we design uh, properties and programs and services and make sure that we don't overbuild the model for a demographic that can't afford what we currently think of as the traditional life plan model, which is an all-inclusive. Think of it like your cable bundle of you know 500 channels all, all wrapped around $149 monthly fee. Uh, what the cable companies have found out is that consumers don't want that. They want to pay for what they use. And I think what we're going to find out as a field is uh, our consumers don't want that either, nor can they afford it. And so we're going to have to unbundle. We're going to have to be careful how we design 
properties to make them attractive, but also to make sure that they are affordable to the market that we're targeting. And I think that what you referenced earlier is exactly right. This market can't afford what they think they can afford. So to some degree, we're going to have to give them uh, what they think they want in a package they can truly afford both coming out of the gate on a, and on a long-term basis. I think also going to affect the, the financial limitations of this demographic are going to affect how we program in our communities. Uh, and in fact, it, it may affect how we uh, program in terms of how we do staffing. I, I think that this is a generation that's going to be working well into or well past a traditional retirement age. And, and I think some of the best providers are going to find ways to engage this workforce engage their own residents in doing, if you will, some of the work of the community. And I think there will be a financial benefit that flows from that that will be important to this demographic. But I think the other thing is I think there's going to be a tremendous social advantage to this that we uh, haven't yet quantified, and that is this continuing need to uh, be useful, to have an impact, and to have a role to play. Uh, this is a generation that's not going to be written off and marginalized. And I think if we do our programming right, we'll have an opportunity to both put together a package that is affordable on a sustained basis, uh, but also attractive on a, on a social and intellectual and personal engagement basis. And I think both of those are, you know, all of that's going to be very important to this demographic. Okay. The Presby's affiliation has given you a national footprint and you're, uh, yeah, and you have some pretty bold ambitions to expand across you know, across the country and again fill in that that midwest segment so that you have a true national footprint with the size and the growth that human good is at now what are your top priorities day to day at the moment i think day to day our top priorities probably not a surprise to anyone in this field are are continuing to make sure that we operate what we have effectively and efficiently, and that we respond to our current market. I, I think one of the dangers we have as, as a company, one of the dangers we have in a few, as a field is we, we spend a whole lot of time talking about what's coming next, and, and that's important. But we've got to remember that in our case, we have 13,000 current residents and, and customers of our programs and services, and we need to make sure we're meeting their needs today and planning for their needs tomorrow at the same time as we position for the coming generation. And, and I think the challenge is that, that we can't just get distracted by what's coming. We've got to remember who we have and, and make sure we're, we're keeping our current customers happy and we're keeping our current team members engaged. So from a, a customer perspective, it's both understanding the current customer we have today while we plan for the customer coming in tomorrow. That's one big area of focus. Another significant area of focus and concern for us uh, which will be no surprise to anyone in this field, is, is labor. And that's both attracting, rewarding, retaining, and developing the team members who do the important work of, of running our communities every day. And increasingly, we're all seeing the pressures of, of a tight labor market. Uh, we're seeing pressures that come from minimum wage increases. But interestingly enough, on the minimum wage side, as we saw movement to a $15 an hour minimum wage start two to three years ago, on the West Coast, we, we were spending a lot of time talking about the fact that that was going to create economic pressure for us as, as the minimum wage increased, and, and that was going to create some compression effects and operating challenges, all of which is true. But what's more interesting is our labor challenges related to the cost of labor is not so much due to the minimum wage, it's due to the competitive wage. 
And that's where we're seeing significant pressures, both in the, in the West Coast markets, but, but really across the country. We don't think that's going to abate anytime in the next 10 to 15 years. We think that if you look at the demographics of the aging population and the diminishing workforce related to that aging population, we think those pressures are only going to increase. And so we've really got to pay attention to how we reward, attract, and retain and develop uh, labor over the next 10 to 15 years. That's a huge area of, of focus for us as an organization. Um, and then I think one, the other area that we're looking at is how we continue to bring technology uh, into our organization and into our field in a way that responds to the needs and demands and interests of the consumers we're serving today and tomorrow makes us more efficient as an organization in, in terms of service delivery, improves the team member experience, uh, allows us to be more efficient, and ultimately looking at how we deploy technology to leverage the work we're already doing in our physical properties and, and reach consumers in their homes uh, and add uh, new markets, new services, and new customers to our portfolio uh, in adjacent spaces. And I think that there's a lot more that we can do with technology to uh, both alleviate some of the current challenges we have, but also address some of the uh, current and coming opportunities. And that's a, that's a real area of, of focus for us also. What technical foundation does human good have in place that it can build on? We have a couple of things. We, we just, and I'll say just, uh, about a year and a half ago, brought a new uh, chief uh, technology officer on board. So our, our CIO, Fleming Mang, joined us uh, fairly recently. He came from a large multi-billion dollar company, so he brings an expertise and a background that's enabling us to both improve what we're doing operationally in significant ways, improve some of the, the back office functions like security, which are increasingly critically important. We read about data breaches every day. And, and so getting the back office operation running effectively is, is key. Making sure we have the infrastructure to support uh, the, the coming technologies is absolutely critical. It's, it's not particularly sexy work building in your Wi-Fi capabilities, making sure you've got the foundation, if you will, on which to to uh, add technologic capacity, but but he's helping us in that regard. So we're, we're certainly spending significant resources building the technologic foundation that will allow us to uh, not only deliver current services, but meet anticipated uh, future needs. The other thing we're doing that I think is, is a little bit unique is uh, we've invested in a venture fund that itself invests in early stage technology companies serving the senior space. Because what we what we discovered as we started interacting with emerging technology companies is a lot of these these early stage companies see the gaps in, in service provision, see the opportunities in the demographic of the aging marketplace. And and so they're they're trying to create properties and programs and services that address those. And they see the demographics, they certainly know technology. And then they got experience you know, building companies that certainly we don't have and will never have. But what we discovered is what they didn't have is a real knowledge of the senior uh, market itself. They didn't understand seniors. And we had a premise going into this that we would have a strategic value to bring to many of these early stage companies to partner alongside them. Uh, not so much to co-develop, I think that's probably a little too grandiose a term, but to influence the development of these technologies uh, and make sure they are shaped appropriately to meet the needs of our seniors, but to meet the needs of our seniors 
meeting the needs of, of the, the broader senior demographic. And so we've invested in, through this venture fund, we've invested in, I think, currently five early stage companies that are bringing technologies to market to improve the, the resident experience and everything from falls-related technology to wound assessment to resident engagement. And what we've discovered is that the strategic value we thought we could bring has been more than recognized uh, in the venture capital world. And we've now got uh, VC companies calling us on, on a regular basis, uh, trying to partner with us because they understand we we have access to the senior marketplace. We know this marketplace. We have the ability to help early stage companies develop. And we have the, help, the ability to help them both get into the market and scale uh, and, and pilot. So that's something that we're doing, which I think is somewhat unique, again, in our field to understand and exploit technologies that will enable us to better serve residents, better serve our, our team members, and ultimately grow the company and grow our mission. Okay. Regarding your existing portfolio at Human Good and ensuring that it's going to meet the demands of you know, the future generation that's coming in. How are you evaluating the existing portfolio and where you need to say retrofit or renovate in order to do that? I, I think that's something that, that we do on a continual basis. This is not a, a new effort for us that we're continually looking at. Both the physical plant of, of what needs to change at the physical plant, you know, where we need to keep things up, what, what needs to be renovated, redesigned, but I think more importantly, frankly, than that, the physical plant gets all the attention. But I think more important, actually, is is the programmatic element, looking at do we have the programs that are attracting and meeting the needs of, of our residents, uh, both current and future. And, and I think that the redesign, when you talk about property design, it needs to start with a programmatic uh, and market understanding. And so before we ever get to, well, how are we going to redo a dining room or how are we going to redo our hallways? The conversation needs to start with what are our customers using today? What are they not using today? What are the pressure points? What are we missing with our current customers? What are the people coming in the door telling us we need to have to be attractive to them? And from those conversations, we get into, okay, so what in the physical structure needs to change? I think as a field, we sometimes put too much emphasis on the physical plant and physical structure as, as being critically important. I, I think, and I don't want to underestimate that it is important. But I, I've seen communities that are somewhat aging, both in our own portfolio and across the, the country, that perform exceptionally well. And, and it's because you have strong community leadership, you have programs that are deeply responsive to and interesting to the population of, of residents that they're serving and attractive to people coming in the door. And, and I think that Again, the, the more important conversation to have is what are our consumers asking us for and are we delivering on the brand promise in a way that's relevant to them? And from that, what does that research tell us about what needs to change in the physical plant? So we are constantly looking at better understanding our current marketplace, better understanding the, the consumers who are coming in the door looking at us, and from there trying to make sure that we meaningfully improve our physical communities to respond to those changes. Okay. You mentioned earlier about how nonprofits are starting to embrace consolidation. And that raises a question about how well the nonprofits are competing against for-profit operators. And is consolidation the route to go or is it just a route to go in order to compete with for-profits? 
I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think it is is the route to go that I think increasingly there are single sites that will continue to be effective more or less in, in meeting the needs of their local geographies and, and they will be able to survive as single sites. I, I don't think that they're necessarily doomed. However, I think there are back office advantages that come from being part of a larger organization that are increasingly important even to the single sites. And I've already talked about information security and IT security. It's very hard for a single site to access the the expertise and, and to have uh, the resources that we have to monitor and, and protect those things. Uh, similar on employment risk and labor management, I, I just think it's hard for single sites to get access to the resources to effectively compete in the marketplace and get the purchasing economies that you, you need to run an organization. That said, I don't think consolidation by itself is, is the last lever we need to pull as a not-for-profit field to compete effectively. What's fascinating is if you look at the makeup of the senior living field, you look at CCRCs, you look at independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing, memory care, uh, almost all of those were started in the not-for-profit world. The CCRCs for sure, assisted living, skilled, memory care, all were born out of the not-for-profit side of the business. And yet the for-profits have claimed the lion's share of the market related to every one of those business lines. And, And I think that's where uh, our lack of ambition and, and our lack of commitment to our mission has really harmed the not-for-profit world. We need to take some of that market share back. If you look at occupancies, I think not-for-profits uh, across the country consistently score better than the for-profits in occupancy. So I think we have some built-in advantages that we should be able to exploit. But I think we need to do that. So again, I think consolidation is one lever that we need to pull that's going to help our field tremendously. But that's only a starting point to reclaiming our industry leadership position uh, in serving the needs of seniors. Is human good viewing how how is human good viewing uh, the Medicare Advantage landscape? I you know we understand that the you know that Medicare Advantage is still in its nascent stages, but it does hold the potential to drive revenues and to ensure more people and to provide more services. Does human good have plans to enter, to get involved with Medicare advantage? It's something we're looking at very closely. I think it's premature for us to say we're going to enter that marketplace, but for all the reasons you articulated, we think it's potentially very attractive, certainly going to offer opportunities to better and perhaps best meet the needs of, of this population. There are significant programmatic advantages to an organization like ours being in Medicare Advantage because many of the advantages that you see with these plans, many of the things they're looking to do, we're already doing as organizations. So it's leveraging success and experience we already have. So it's something we're taking a very hard look at, both in terms of uh, whether we want to play in this field, whether we want to partner with someone in this field how we enter, and and what the long-term market position is. We think there's certainly an attractive element for the population that we serve in affordable housing, for example. We think there's real value we could bring and or a Medicare Advantage plan itself, whether it's ours or someone else's, could bring to this population. We think there are significant advantages a plan could bring to the residents of our market rate communities. And we think that there are significant advantages in the middle markets. And we also think that this is a, a potential vehicle to exploit what we're currently doing and bring value to current customers at the same time as reach outside our walls and bring significant value to new customers. 
And I think that's that's another element that's important for the not-for-profits as, as we look to uh, grow and build sustainable and, and vibrant and vital businesses. We've got to look at growth opportunities. And I think the Medicare Advantage may be one of those significant opportunities. Again, it's well aligned with what we're currently doing. We should be well positioned to take advantage of, of those opportunities and, and lead the market. We don't know yet what that vehicle looks like for us or whether it's the path we're going to go down, but we're, we're looking at that uh, hard and fast. Okay. And our final question for you is, part of it's a crystal ball question. Uh, What are you most excited about moving forward in the industry? The first part of the question is, what's keeping you up at night? I think what's keeping me up at night is an interesting question. I've uh, recently been on a town hall tour of our communities and having conversations with team members and and residents uh, across our, our, our company. I've addressed this very issue, and the, the good news is there's not a lot that keeps me up at night. There are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of opportunities out there. I'm confident in our ability to meet the challenges, and I'm and I'm confident in our ability to uh, find the right and execute on the right opportunities. So there's not a lot that's keeping me up at night. But the one thing that does keep me up at night is the labor situation, and it's not just the cost. It's not just accessing, rewarding, retaining, and developing staff. That's certainly a, a challenge today, and it's going to be a challenge, uh, again, for years to come. This is not a short-term uh, challenge we're going to be dealing with. But what concerns me, I, I think, most in the labor market, and it's acutely realized uh, in, in the West Coast markets, is the lifestyle pressures that our, our core team members are experiencing. You know, we're in uh, very expensive markets in which to operate and to live. So whether it's Seattle or San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, they're, they're very expensive markets. And what our team members are routinely telling me is, hey, we love our work. We love the company. We love the opportunities we have. We want to be here. We love the relationships we have with the residents, with the family members, with our team members. It's a great place to work. It's a great field to be in. We see a great future. But at the levels of we can afford to pay for the jobs that we have, it's very, very hard for our team members to make ends meet. Many of them are working two jobs. They're increasingly driving an hour and an hour and a half to get to those jobs. This creates pressures uh, both on individuals, uh, but also on, on the families who, who are trying to hold it together. And, and so I'm, I'm very concerned long-term about how we make sure that we, you know, as we look at our brand promise of inspiring the best life possible for those we serve, uh, that brand promise in our case starts with our team members. And, and so we're spending a lot of time as a board and the management team discussing how do we make sure that, that we bring that brand promise of inspiring the best life possible to our team members so in turn they can bring that to our, our residents and those we serve. And, and that's the issue that's more than anything else keeping me awake at night. What I've told our residents and our team members is I don't have the answers to that by myself, that's for sure. But I'm Again, confident that that as an organization, uh, if, if we all bring our best thinking to the table and keep our minds open and uh, try some things and be willing to fail, uh, we'll find our way through that. But that is a, a real area of, of focus and concern for me. Regarding those workforce pressures, what is Human Good doing to do recruitment and to create uh, to create a talent pipeline? I, I, we've spoken with uh, other operators and other providers who are doing outreach to college and even high school campuses, and we know we understand that it's a little bit hard because many of the roles that uh, you know providers are looking to fill 
are hourly in nature. Is human good, you know, does human good have a good, in, you know, has, say, have a good internship program or a training program? What type of outreach, you know, community outreach is it doing to attract new talent to the industry? Well, we're doing focused community outreach. So we have team members whose sole job it is to get out in the communities uh, and, and talk to everybody they can, every venue they can uh, about the opportunities in, in senior living and the opportunities with human good. And and in my view, uh, that's a necessary start, but it's absolutely not sufficient for what we need. So I'm glad we're doing it. I think we're, we're doing more or less well at that. But as a company and as a field, we've got to do significantly more than that. You know, I, I think we need to look at uh, how to engage and attract a younger generation into seeing the opportunities in our field broadly. And so it's getting into nursing programs and getting into early management programs at colleges and, and community colleges and, yes, even high schools and, and, and get kids and younger younger people, younger working adults in the door early and, and making sure they understand their career ladders here and development opportunities for them. So I think that's, that's one path. I, th- I think a second path that we need to be looking at is how to develop the worker who may be at their second or third uh, career in life. So a 40, 50-year-old who, you know, for example, and Bob Kramer uses the, the example of uh, at some point the, the you know, truck driving industry, which is one of the largest employers in something like 37 of the 50 states. Uh, as, as that goes away, how do we attract and, and deploy those people into a new field? How do we train them and, and, and bring them into our field? And I think we need to look at those uh, second and, and third career people who are at a more mature place in their career and then try to attract them. And then I think the third leg is we've got to look at the senior market itself and, and say, how do we uh, deploy the senior marketplace? I think it's, it's one of the biggest talent pools hiding in plain sight. And I think we've got to rethink how we do employment, how we how we position jobs. But I think there's there's a, an opportunity to attract the senior workforce back into the workplace, but probably not on a full time basis. And and so we're going to need flexible in our thinking and in our staffing. But I think that's going to be a, kind of the third leg of the stool of how we're going to solve this problem. I don't think there is one solution to the labor challenge that we're facing. I think there are a host of solutions. Uh, and I will tell you that at Human Good, the vacuum is always on. We're, we're always out there scanning um, you know, articles and, and looking at what other organizations are doing for best practices that we can bring over to Human Good and, and deploy here. So again, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think there are going to be multi-solutions uh, in multiple channels, and I think we're going to need every one of those to be successful. Well, this has been a very long-ranging conversation. John Cochran, Human Good, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Transform Podcast. Chuck, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. That does it for this episode of Transform. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Project submissions are open through October 31st. I'm Chuck Sudo with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.